Section 74 of India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Stewart. The World's Story, Volume 2, India, Persia, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. Edited by Ava March Tappan. Section 74. The Food of the Royal Tutor by Wilfred Sparoy When I was in Persia, the most frequent question that came to my hand by post was, What are you having to eat at your end of the world? And I was rated soundly by my friends because of my remissness in not making epistolary capital out of my culinary experiences. I excused myself then by pleading the impossibility of paying a literary tribute to my food, since I had fallen into the Persian habit of taking a nap after tiffin, and of going to bed as soon as I had discussed my supper. And surely, I added, you would not expect me to wax eloquent on an aftertaste. But the excuse was flung indignantly back to me. The truth is, when we Ferangis are grown accustomed to the Persian life, we do not think it worth the effort to give shape and color to our impressions by putting pen to paper. It is more comfortable to rejoice inwardly that our balance, amid the topsy-turvydom of our surroundings, has been restored by the kindly hand of custom. We prefer to chew the cud of meditation, as the Persians do, and we will, until the end of our stay, be warned to evade the enthusiasm that would spur us into correspondence. For when a Ferangi catches the Oriental fever, his gusto for writing is speedily swallowed by a yawning figure of interrogation leaping over its own full stop. Now the daily round, so long as I was content to abide within the court circle, kept pace with the sun. I would rise at six, take a header into the tank, drink a cup of tea without milk, and be ready at seven to saunter to school in the divan cane, preceded by my two soldiers bearing the books and writing materials. These would be laid aside at midday, when the Persians take to themselves the nahar, the first substantial meal of the day. Mine, during the six weeks in which I was the Zilu Sultan's guest, was brought over to me from his cooking house, on an immense tray of brass covered over with a cloth of brilliant design in purple and gold. The average number of courses, all served at once, was fifteen. Among these, there were always a dozen poached eggs on a china dish, a basin of abgusht, or mutton broth, under a layer of yellow oil, a platter containing a pilaw of boiled rice flavored with orange juice or mixed with currants, a more substantial pilaw mixed with stewed meat, and a lamb kebab on a wooden skewer, folded in a sheet of pebble bread to keep it warm. The bread derives its name from the sloping back of pebbles within the oven on which are set the flat cakes of dough. The entrees consist of one rich koresh, curry, of flesh, and another of fowl to be eaten with the chilaw, or plain boiled rice, of which there were two white pyramids on plates. For dessert I had peaches as big as coconuts, grapes as big as English plums, several kinds of melon, for the growth of which Isfahan is famous, and delectable dates from the Persian Gulf, stowed away in the rind of a melon, a bowl of delicious sherbet, composed of pomegranate juice, split with iced sugar and water, and served with a beautifully carved pear-wood spoon from a bade, and an uncorked bottle of Shiraz wine, with a purple aster stuck in the neck by way of a stopper, where the beverage is laid before me. 
Last of all was a basin of mast kayar, curds and cucumbers, a favorite dish with the Persians, that would be eaten at the end of the repast and digested in the arms of Morpheus. For the slight thirst it excites, as the uninitiated have learned from internal evidence, should not be made an excuse for the glass. The thirst will pass away in sleep, provided the sherbet and the wine be left alone. To quaff of the fragrant cups would be to set the curds and cucumbers a-squabbling and a-swelling to the visible discomfort of the inner man. The Zilu's sultan's servant, having deposited the tray on the floor, would say to me, Nish'ai Janbad, may it be sweet to your soul. Then he would withdraw, leaving my road servant Sadiq to lay the cloth. In the place of a table there was the floor. The five fingers of my right hand did duty for knives and forks, and as for the plates, behold a plentiful supply of pebble bread and thin sheets, one on top of the other. First, Sadiq would spread over the carpet a square of oilcloth, atop of which he would lay a gaudy strip of chintz, setting each dish where it belonged, the place of honor at the head of the tablecloth facing the door, where the master of the house sits, is occupied by the two dishes of pilaw. Opposite to them, at the other end, rise the two pyramids of white chilaw. The bowl of sherbet with the spoon floating in it stands in the middle, and the ragouts and fruits are placed at the extreme corners, facing one another diagonally. In the family circle, the father, having rolled up his sleeves and squatted himself on his knees and heels, helps himself first. Then he passes the spoon, the dish remaining stationary, to his wife at his right hand, and she serves herself and her children in the order of seniority. The mode of consuming the rice, from time immemorial, is to get as much of it as possible in the fork of the forefinger and thumb pressed closely together, cramming it into the mouth by means of the latter. And the best way of eating the spicy ragout is to roll it up, bit by bit, in a morsel of pebble bread, which, being as it is of the consistency of pancake, neither crumbles nor breaks in the process. The cooking of the rice is beyond all praise. The best Parisian chef could not prepare it half so well. The chila, in particular, is a triumph. Every single grain of it is separate. So dry is it on the outside, but inside it is full of juice. The pila has a singularly sobering effect upon the diners, and can scarcely be said to be conducive to conversation. Indeed, the Persians must do all of their talking immediately before meals. The yellow weeping of the Shiraz vine has the smack of old sherry, and at its prime is exceedingly dry, fruity, and inspiring. As everybody keeps silent, the meal, notwithstanding the enormous consumption of food, is all over within twenty minutes, and ends with the washing of hands by pouring water over them from a brass ewer into a brass bowl, after which mouths are rinsed, sleeves rolled down, and then a pipe of tobacco is smoked, and slumber one, in the summer time at least, without much wooing of the drowsy god. I had no scruples about following the customs of the country in these particulars, and I persevered in the endeavor to gain proficiency in the Persian method of dining, until I had wrung from the powers that be the necessities of an English dinner-table. The desire to continue in the habit died with the necessity of doing so. After the postprandial drowsiness had yielded to a siesta and a cold tub, I would dress myself in clean linen and white flannels, and while away the hours between three o'clock and sundown, first by drilling the young princes, and next by entertaining my guest, or by paying visits to my friends. 
The meal that brings the day to a close is called sham. It is served about two hours after sunset and consists of the same viands as the nahar, and in almost equal abundance. I owe it to my reputation to assure the reader that the food provided for me was not the measure of my appetite, but that of the prince's hospitality, on which a squad of soldiers might have fared not wisely, but too well. End of section 74 This recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Kevin Stewart